Just last week, a writer of a credible website posted an article with this title. The countries where it's most dangerous to be a Christian in 2020. He started the article by saying this. Around the world, more than 260 million Christians, one in every eight believers, experience high levels of persecution just for following Jesus. Building off the ministry of the Open Doors World Watch List, he started to say some statistics to give some more concrete information about what does it look like for those who are bearing the name of Jesus to be oppressed for their faith every day. He said this, 9,488 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. This is in 2020 alone. 3,711 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. Just less than 3,000 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. On average, eight Christians were killed every day just for being a Christian. Of the top 50 countries in the world where persecution is most felt, America was not on the list. Persecution, if we had to give it a definition, means when you are oppressed in some way for your faith. And in America here, it seems foreign to us in some way, but over the past 10, 20, 50 years, some of you are quick to tell me that you, you've seen the culture sort of shift away from Christian values, and, and suddenly more and more, it seems like the prospect of being mistreated, whether it's something like social disapproval or bodily harm, seems to be more of a threat in the western part of the world. So many of us, whether we are able to articulate it or not, we might feel a sense of a fear of what's going to happen to me. Or, or maybe not me, my children growing up in this generation, or my grandchildren. And we can feel this fear together. But when we look at the words of Jesus in this passage, both this week and next week, he has comforting words for his disciples. Today we're continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John and we're working through John verse by verse and we're trying to look at what, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And we get to the section that's famously called the farewell discourse. You may have listened to a farewell speech before. Someone's retiring, someone's leaving. Uh, Jesus here is going to die soon and rise from the dead. But before he does... He looks at his 12 disciples and says, I, I have some stuff to tell you. And this is some of the most fascinating teachings in all of Scripture. And it's been really touchy-feely at this point. Uh, it's been love people, love people, no greater than this that you love. It it's been really, really heartwarming. But now Jesus starts to bring in the realities of discipleship and teaches that persecution is inevitable for followers of Jesus. This week we look at wh why. Why is it that some people hate Jesus? Why is it some people hate his followers? And, th and next week we'll look at how we can deal with it. The resources provided in the Christian faith to help you 
encourage you in your faith. And then Jesus starts here, verse 18, the first verse in this passage, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So before Jesus goes to die and rise from the dead, he's preparing his disciples. Like, look, I've went through this. People criticized me. People made fun of me. They mocked me. Uh, They're going to crucify me here soon. If it happened to me, don't be surprised. It might happen to you. Whenever we're going through a hard time or difficult time, it's so comforting to know that we're not alone. To know that someone else has walked through it first. It doesn't get you out of the situation, but it provides comfort. Hey, I'm not the only one. Jesus says, you won't be the only one. I've went through it first. If the world hates you, a strong word that means detest, a strong aversion to. And Jesus says, uh, the world's going to do this to you if you follow me. When the Bible uses the word world, it's, it's not talking about... Uh, planet, earth, stars, moon, it it has nothing to do with that at all. When the Bible talks about world, it's talking about people. If you read your Bible, world is any people, institutions, media, magazines that are not followers of Jesus. What one commentator says, it's moral order apart from God. So both people and organizations that don't believe in Jesus, that don't want to live for him, have his values, that's, that's world. That, that's what it means. And Jesus says, don't be surprised if my people, the church, Christians, experience attack. And we've seen that over and over again, both through other religions or media and people and so forth. This aligns with Peter's words in 1 Peter where he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We cannot see Jesus suffering for us and decide to follow him and think that we will be the exception to the rule. Some kind of suffering and persecution is guaranteed for disciples of Jesus. And this particularly being oppressed by the world, it, if you are feeling that way, you shouldn't feel like it's a sign of unfaithfulness, but it's actually a sign of faithfulness in some respect. Verse 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So being loved by the world as its own And having nothing different about the way you talk, live, or act is a sign of being of the world. I quoted it earlier, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, Do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world will make himself an enemy of God. Strong language. We all have desires to be liked loved, needed, feel like we belong, the place to find that is in knowing God and a growing relationship with Him, not from those who are opposed to Him. We look for it in God. And Jesus has given the what. The what is that His followers are going to experience some form of persecution. It's coming. 
But he also now gives the why. Why? If Jesus is so gentle and meek and loving and glorious, why would people hate him? Or, or if the followers of Jesus are loving and forgiving and, and represent Christian values, why the antagonism? Usually we don't like people or we hate people who are arrogant, who bother us in some way, who do something really malicious, and we have a reason, a justifiable reason, so we tell ourselves, for, for disliking them. But Jesus never sinned. And Jesus' followers will sin. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God in many ways. But if we're living out Christian values, and there's peace and joy and love, why, why would people not like that? Shouldn't people like that? Jesus gives the reason here. He says, But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We have a therefore. I said this once, I'll say it again. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, ask why is it therefore? That you see a therefore, usually there's a signal. Jesus saying, I chose you out of the world, so the choice of Jesus of certain people brings this hatred. What what does that even mean? Why, Why would people do that? Well, throughout Scripture, we see God's choice. He chooses Israel, not Egypt. He chooses Peter, not Judas. He chooses Abel, not Cain. And Cain and Abel, brothers, had it out, says in 1 John, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Those who are not Christian, who don't have a saving relationship with the God of the Bible, their hearts are full of wickedness and evil to the point that they hate God and God's followers. That is the rationale. It's simply hate born in every person and apart from God's grace of saving someone, of choosing to initiate a saving relationship, that's the plight that we all face. Jesus gives the reason why he is hated earlier in the Gospel of John. He says, John 7, 7, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Uh, Sin is building your life on anything besides God, as other people would say. And when one is building one's life on anything besides God, and they are so committed to their own opinion are so committed to the way they're living, and one lovingly shows them that they're actually, according to the gospel, a sinner in need of a savior, it massively offends people. Nobody's telling anybody to go on the street and, and blow a microphone. Like, that doesn't work. No one, no one is asking anyone to needlessly offend anyone. But certainly, as you walk with Jesus and know Jesus and become more like Jesus, and you have secular friends at work or from college or high school or other grandchildren, some sort of children, a loving way, and, and they're not walking with God, it, your heart will break for them. Say, so I, I want them to know God. I have this saving relationship with, them, uh, with God. I don't, I don't want to be apathetic. I don't want to just experience God's grace and not extend God's grace. 
So we say, come to community group, come to Bible study, come to this ministry, come to church on Sunday, or you share the gospel, and you get to the point of, you, you need a Savior. For many people, it's a hard message to hear, to say that your works aren't good enough, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. But the good news is this, Jesus died on the cross in your place and for your sins. And regardless of any sin you've committed, no matter how bad your past was, it can be wiped clean. That is the good news. But many people have a hard time hearing it, not because they don't understand grace, but because they don't want grace. They don't want a savior. They want to save themselves. And if you lovingly show people their need for a savior, it can, it can bring attack. It happened to Jesus. It will happen to the bold evangelists among us. Being on the receiving end of this persecution is hard, but here Jesus, both this week and next week, he offers a resource to help us. Verse 20, he says this, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. He said that earlier in John's Gospel. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's the logic. It's like, I'm, I'm the king, I'm the savior, I'm the teacher, you follow me, they do it to me, you're going to get it too. It might look different, especially in the 21st century western world, it's going to look a lot different, but don't be surprised if it comes. Jesus continues and he says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. So don't take it personal. Because they don't know him who sent me. They don't know God. They don't have a saving relationship with him. Earlier in the passage, Jesus says, no. Now he says, remember. To know something, you need knowledge, wisdom. Christianity is a religion of feelings. Feelings are good. Feelings are very good. We need to be honest about what we're feeling and why we're feeling it. But Christianity is also a religion of the mind. And Jesus is instructing his disciples to think, ponder, use your brain. No, remember. They did it to me, they'll do it to you. He reminds them of something he said earlier. And so for them, they would treasure Jesus' words in their hearts after he died and went to heaven. And they would memorize some of the Old Testament scriptures. But for us, the command of Jesus here is to Scripture meditation, memorization. That's what he's calling his disciples to do. That's what he calls us to do. Uh, in the past, I would often use a Bible reading plan every year. So like structure, organization. I don't do well with spontaneity. I just can't wake up and flip through and pick something. I find that to be frustrating. I, I like to have a plan for the whole year. So I print out a Bible reading plan. And, you know, every year in Genesis, it's, you know, Matthew, New Testament, beginning Genesis, okay, Psalm 1. For many years, I did that as a way to get the Word of God in me. But uh, I, I noticed recently that I, I have questions, and I, I want to squeeze out everything I can from one verse. And so, you know, for, for this year, I decided to switch it up. And I thought, okay, let me just pick one book of the Bible, get a study Bible, Get a commentary, and let me just read this one book of the Bible, take notes, and just sit in this for the next six months. 
And so I've been doing that. I picked a book of the Bible, reading it, reading study Bible, reading a commentary, taking notes, writing down verses. It's like my ability to comprehend Scripture and have it sitting in me, dwelling in me richly, as Paul says, has gone through the roof. You don't have to do that. Some of us don't like reading commentaries. That's fine. Some of us, uh, you don't have to do what other people do. You ha- but you do have to do something that works for you, some sort of system to where the Word of God, the words of God will dwell in you. For some of us, we're massively busy, and so listening to the Bible on audio to and from work could be a way. Others of us, are we have more time in our hands, and it's just a matter of being able to access God's Word. But if anybody is going to thrive during hard times, especially through persecution, one must be familiar, not, not an expert, Nobody knows everything. I don't know anything. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need a college degree. None of that at all. We're all learning. I'm still learning a lot. But just getting in Scripture and having God's Word dwell in you, it will help tremendously through difficult times. We, we often say uh, in America, um, with respect to persecution and hard times, so Jesus is talking about that, we say we don't experience it at all. But I would push back on that a little bit and say, actually, we do. It just looks a little differently. There, there is some form of persecution. And again, our definition of persecution is some sort of oppression for your faith. And this happens when a, a, a church or a pastor is sued for refusal to perform some kind of marriage or someone who works in the bakery industry and doesn't want to make a cake for a, uh, for a belief they don't believe in. Or when church plants and new churches are started and they want to rent schools, elementary and high schools, or common places for new churches to meet, and they're denied because they're a religious activity. This is a form of mild persecution. But probably the biggest one that we face is, as one writer says, is a social disapproval. It's no longer cool to be a Christian. It, it was. 50s, 60s, 70s, some people will say, man, there were so many more people in churches back in the 50s and 40s, and man, this place was filled, packed with the seams. And, and, and I certainly I don't know the heart of everyone, but part of the reason is because it was culturally acceptable to be a Christian. In fact, it got you something, like status, or like you could put it on your job resume, and it would look favorably and many of these people weren't really saved. They didn't really know God. They were just sort of going because that was a thing to do. But, but once the cultural aspect and the cultural advantage to being a Christian was gone, so was there a lot of people, a mass exodus. So what we're seeing actually in America is not that the church was doing worse. What we're seeing is that uh, secularism, that is non, anything, nothing to do with religion, like atheism and agnosticism, that's increasing. That's a fact. But so, so are the, the, the Christians are actually growing. What's gone away is the mushy, hypocritical middle, and that's gone. Why? It's no longer culturally cool to be a Christian. So when you said you were a believer 40 years ago, it got you something. Now, it might get you hurt in some way. And, and the most common way is social disapproval. So what do I mean by that? You have friends from high school, friends from college, and you get together with them, and you're, you're, you feel very nervous to tell them that you're a follower of Jesus, 
uh, or you're very afraid of not participating in activities that they participate in that you perceive as sinful because you're worried about what they think of you. That, that is a legitimate, legitimate form of potential persecution, to lose a friend. That's hard. What are they going to think of me? That's difficult. I've been buddies with these guys for decades, and now I'm going to not... I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I, I wanna take Jesus more seriously, my Christian faith more seriously. What are they gonna think of me? It, it's, more of, it's more of that for us, of a fear of sharing the gospel or a fear of identifying with the church because of what secular media says about it or a fear of losing friends because of the name of Christ. It's a real temptation, but that, that's why friendship and fellowship in the church is massively important. That's why it's important to, to, to be a part, but not just be a part, but be involved and to have friends that you can do life with. Go, going out to eat is fun. Going on vacations is fun. But it's also a talk about Jesus. Talk about the Bible. Cast burdens on one another. If you don't do that kind of stuff, what difference is your friendships compared to the world's friendships? just the same thing. Christian friendship is about sharing your life, being vulnerable, being open appropriately, the other person doing the same, and each other helping each other become more like Christ. And so the, the fear of social disapproval is huge, but that's why friendship in the church is also massively important. So Jesus tells his disciples why they will hate them, but he also tells them that they are without excuse. That is, the people who reject God, because Jesus has been there and doing ministry in life. He says, he says this, he says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they will not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated me, both me and my Father. What is Jesus saying here? He's, he's just saying this. I've come, celebrated the incarnation over Christmas. I came, came down. I lived perfectly. I did miracles. Taught about sin, hell, the wrath of God, heaven, forgiveness of sins. I loved people. I've served them. I healed many and, and some, some did repent and believe, but, but many did not. And now they have no excuse. One commentator says, privilege and responsibility go together. You might, you might say, more knowledge of God brings more responsibility to God. The more gifted you are, the more influence you have, the more blessed you are by God in some ways, the more he expects you to bless and serve other people. But the specific context here is, is a lack of faith for believing Jesus because of knowledge of God. You can think of two, two children, child A grows up in the church, loving Christian parents, confirmed, youth group, mom and dad, great at home, loving church, heard about the gospel for 18 years, but get to college or some other point in bail. Child B just didn't grow up in a, 
Christian home, a broken home, and never heard about Jesus, doesn't know anything about the Bible, and lives a secular lifestyle. According to this passage, Jesus is saying that this child is more responsible because they have knowledge of God. It's a scary thing to hear about God, the realities of sin, the realities of the afterlife, and to comprehend but to reject it. That's what the people were doing, that Jesus was saying. Saying they were rejecting me after all that I said to them. And somehow, even though we don't fully understand it, it fits into God's plan. Because he says this, verse 25, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That verse is from the Psalms. Psalm 69, 4, where David writes, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without a cause. David is saying, I'm zealous for God. That psalmist he, is written by David. I'm following God. I'm a passionate worship of God. But I have all these critics and these haters and these people that hate me. Jesus is saying the same thing about himself. That many hate him for no good reason. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul, a theologian and author who went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, he shares two different stories about what social disapproval and this persecution could look like. The first story is about pastors and ministers in the 20th and 21st century and the, the kind of persecution we face. And he tells the story and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't represent me at all, but he, Sproul was saying that he goes to Holland to study and he, he went there to get a PhD in theology and when he was in Holland, he had to learn the Dutch language. And learning the Dutch language was really hard for him, even though he probably knew six or seven languages, all the guys at that level usually do. And, uh, but he, he, slowly but surely, he started to pick up on the Dutch language. And one night, he was out with friends, and it was a very animated conversation. He didn't say this in the book, but I picture beers and, and cussing and things flying around the room. And so these guys are, are according to their standards, having a good time. And Sproul is with them, doesn't tell us why he's there, he doesn't have to tell us, we're going to believe the best in him. And uh, just hanging out, having a, having a good time. And then one of, the, one of the guys, and not that he was participating in any of those activities, he could have just been there, just being there and not, not sinning at all, it's, it's possible to, to do that. Uh, and so he was just there, and suddenly one of the guys said something in Dutch that was really, seemed inappropriate or awkward. And... Um, Sproul asked him, what, 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 what does that mean? He said, a minister walked by. He said, why, does, why do you say a minister walked by? A mini- they, were, they were having this party and a pastor walked by. And he said, R.C. Sproul asked his friend for an explanation. And he said that uh, it was custom in Holland to scream out a minister walked by when any kind of person would threaten a good time. And Sproul continues, he says, to say that a minister walked by was to offer an explanation for the sudden silence. The idea was that nothing could ruin a party faster than the presence of a clergyman. He says, when the minister appears, the fun is over. That's a minor level you know, so I'm a, I've talked to people at the gym, they ask me, what do you do for a living? And I tell them, and it just gets kind of awkward there sometimes. And it's like, oh, this guy's a minister. And, 
He, he tells another story about Billy Graham, and uh, this one's a little bit more serious and a little bit more straightforward. But Billy Graham, some of you know him from the 20th century, popular evangelist. He would preach in a stadium of 50,000 people, and then the next day he would do the same and the same. One of the most influential Christians ever. And uh, apparently Billy Graham liked sports because he played golf. And he was really high up with the presidents and the big shots of his day, and they really liked him. And one day he got, he got invited to play golf with a really, really good golfer, uh, Jack Nicholas and Gerald Ford. So they're out playing golf, and they're playing. And uh, the really good golfer, who I didn't name, ha- didn't play well. And his friend asked him, he said, hey, what was it like playing golf with Billy Graham? The golfer was furiated because he played really poorly. And the golfer said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And then he stormed out of the conversation to the practice tee to go keep hitting balls, golf balls. Bad swing there. Um, so he went out to the practice tee and his friend followed him. It's like, man, dude, you just, you just blamed Billy Graham for your golf game, you're, you're really furiated. I can see steam coming out of your ears and your eyes. What's going on? And so his friend asked, was Billy a little rough on you out there? Was he being a Bible thumper, telling you you need to repent, that you're not good enough, your deeds aren't good enough? What was he, what was he saying? What, how did Billy Graham's presence really bring you down? And the golfer, feeling a little bit humiliated, he said, after a sigh. No. He didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. Billy Graham didn't say anything about God. And this golfer blamed his bad game on him. Sproul continues in the book. He says, how can we explain this? It's really not difficult, Sproul says. Billy Graham didn't have to say a word. He didn't have to give a single sideward glance to make the pro feel uncomfortable. Billy Graham is so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God, that his very presence is enough to smother the wicked person who flees when no one pursues. Luther, Martin Luther, the German theologian, was right. Pagans do tremble at the rustling of a leaf. They feel the hound of heaven breathing down their neck. They feel crowded by holiness, even if it is made present only by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. Jesus says, they hated me without a cause. Experienced that on a minor level that day. Question for us is, with social disapproval, becoming more prevalent in the 21st century in America is, are we willing to stand up for what we believe in even when it's costly? Are we willing to end certain inappropriate friendships that bring us down for the name of Christ? Are we willing to make scripture memorization in the local church body a priority to help us as being a Christian becomes more costly? best way to do it is to look to Christ, the one who suffered on your behalf, on the cross, in your place for your sins. It says that there was no deceit, no sin, never hurt a person, and yet was mocked, spit on, beat, 
flogged and died on the cross for your, on your place where you deserve to die, where I deserve to die, and you rose from the dead. The more that we look to Jesus for spiritual strength and see how much he suffered on behalf of God's people, the more we'll be able to be faithful as persecution increases. Let's pray. Lord, we need boldness to continue to speak your word, to continue to fight for what we believe in, to continue to represent you in the midst of an increasingly hostile culture. We pray for spiritual power and boldness. And Lord, I just pray that we would just really see that comfort is so overrated and that self-denial and sacrifice is where we find true joy. May we be a people, Lord God, who are able to do this. Give us the strength, forgive us where we fail, and help us to look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.